And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with award-winning editor and Worldcon guest of honor, Ellen Datlow on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome, Ellen. How did you like the intro? I loved that. That's great. Isn't that great? I don't remember you doing that earlier. I mean, when the last time we were on. I think, I think, I think we've been, yeah, Jonathan has been in that. This is really good, you know. It's, it's really hard is. <laughs> it's it's high quality professional radio type stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and I'm I'm delighted because I get to I get to spend some time talking to two of the most intimidating editors I know. Oh please. Yeah, get out of it. We're not intimidating, intimidating are we? Are we? Well, okay, okay. By that I mean this: uh, that when I review a book, I have to the, the stories are there. And I just all I have to do is say, ah, that's pretty good. That one's pretty good. Overall, it's pretty good. But I don't, as a as a reviewer, I don't have to put the stories out there and say, here, I think you'll like this. I mean, that seems to me like I'm cooking a a, a new experimental dish every night for house guests, and I'm putting it out on the table and saying, here, I think you'll like this. I I don't have as much confidence as you guys do to pick stories and put them in books. I'm not even sure how to respond to that. <laughs> um, I can you clarify? <laughs> Do you mean that? I don't know what you mean by that. I guess what he, my, I, what I take take okay. to mean is: Are we? Uh, uh, do we feel? Uh, ownership, responsibility, and whatever else for the stories we publish, and are we nervous about how they'll be received? Is that what it is? That yeah, what I mean? guess that's it. I mean, yes, yeah, always. Editors are paranoid. I was just, I, in fact, I had just um, contacted a writer who I've done gone through like a couple of revisions on a story, and I'm still not quite happy with it. And so I gave her these long notes, and I was really, I didn't hear from, back from her immediately, you know, like, it, and I was going to ask her if I didn't hear back like in another 12 hours, I was going to email you, okay, are you mad at me? And then she got back and said, no, you know, it's like, oh, here I am, and like, I'm sorry I disappointed you. And I said, are you kidding me? It's like, I was worried that you were mad at me. You know, it's like even editors get paranoid. <laughs> I guess a lot. Well, well, there is. There's always that feeling when something goes uh, either you know slightly, if the editing process is slightly difficult for whatever ever reason, or if um, you're talking to somebody and maybe it, for whatever reason it gets a little difficult. You just wonder mm -hmm. if the whole thing, you know, the whole relationship is now at stake because you haven't handled yeah. it quite right. They yeah. won't love you anymore. But also, the, the other thing is that. With every book, I'm mean, the first reviews. I'm terrified. I worry really? that. Yeah, are you kidding? Yes. I mean, I mean not we, got, we don't. I, I don't I, get all. No one gets all good reviews. And well, that's when true. Some, and just like a, a writer, um, the the good reviews don't make an impression. It's the one bad one that really upsets you. <laughs> even with you know, even with editors, it's like that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's true. And, uh, and and as you know, there are reviews which I write a review which I think is a good review and then I get howls of outrage because I didn't like the right thing or I didn't like it in the right, <laughs> right. way. Yeah, well uh, that happens. I, well I feel that way as an editor. I mean it's like oh my god they didn't get the stories. Like oh no. You know it's like uh oh is it them or us? Or, or me. Or, or that weird thing where they applaud you get a review that applauds something you know you didn't do. Well yeah that. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that happens. But I mean, Ellen, you've been doing this for so long, and as a, if I'm not mistaken, I didn't add it up, but you have to have more collective awards than any editor ever in the history of this field. I mean, all the world fantasies and the Stokers and the Hugos. So. And I bet Garden, how many Hugos did Gardner win? He must have won 25 or something. That's something like that, yeah, he did. So I think he's won okay. more Hugos than I've won other awards, but I don't know. Well, I mean, who, I who's counting? Mark <laughs> Kelly's counting. They're all uh, on my own. Well, most of them are. <laughs> Yeah, Mark Kelly knows that, but the, but but you've won more and more varieties. I mean, Shirley Jackson and Stoker and World Fantasy and Hugo's, so you're covering yeah, a lot. Really, it's really very interesting, and I'm happy for that. And it's accidental in a way that I moved. I mean, I'm delighted because I can edit science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and yeah. I did not go into the field or come into the field knowing I would do that. I mean, I I didn't. Well, I knew nothing, but that's beside the point <laughs> when I started. Um, but, I mean, I started editing, you know, science fiction at Omni, and I didn't know I was going to get into more horror and, and fantasy, although I always loved horror, and I read fantasy. So I think that does give me, not an advantage exactly, but it, it, some people might think it dilutes my editorial, I don't know, 
I don't know. I think I th- my my sense is that like two different fields, subgenres of a fantastic. Or the Sorry, crossover stories, the, the the science fiction horror stories that work both ways, like Sand Kings or something like that. So you can. But you didn't edit. I didn't buy Sand Kings. That would be. You didn't I buy Sand Kings. Kings. No, okay. Ben bought Sand Kings. Yeah. Oh, that was that was before. Okay, okay, great. Uh, yeah, I bought. It's nevertheless, uh, it's nevertheless that the fact that I'm wrong is irrelevant to my point. Um, <laughs> okay. The point I was so. making is that you could you could anthologize a story like that as a horror story or as a science fiction story equally validly. Absolutely, sure. Yes. But what I'm curious about in all these. Anthologies, and I get to—I mean, I—I I, I get to harass Jonathan about this, but I don't to hash, harass you as much as I like to. There must be occasions when, in in putting together an anthology of, of original stories, that you mentioned you'd, you'd work with a writer, you'd really tweak a story, you'd, you'd get several drafts, and you'd really get the story, and and nobody notices it. And then there must be other occasions where there's a story which you think is okay. I'll just put it in there; it's filler, and it turns out everybody loves it, and it's a classic. It happens all the time. It happened at Omni. It happened. My that's why the stories that I reprint over and over again are the ones that I think didn't get enough attention. I'm not all uh-huh. of them, but I mean that's a lot of them are stories that I published or other people published, and I thought they need to find a new audience. Why didn't anyone love this story as much as I did? So when I pick reprints, not all, of course. I mean, not when I'm doing a reprint anthology. I get a lot of recommendations from people, but if you see stories that I kind of have used more than once or that I published once in originally and then reprint them, it's mm-hmm. a good indication that I find the story, it really lasted, it really stuck to me, and I think it needs more attention. So, yeah, all the time there are stories that are the obvious ones that are going to get attention that may be wonderful and I love them, but then there are the ones that don't get attention, the stepchild maybe. Yeah. Um, that I think should have, or should. And I'm sure that happens with you, Jonathan, all the time also. Sure, it? sure. And also, I mean, you get this every every now and again. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I think the most exciting and nerve-wracking moment of being an editor in some ways is when you get a story, well, these days, I guess, in your email inbox, and you get to read it for the first time, and you're not sure whether it's going to be magic or tragic kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And then when you feel it is, I mean, I, I'll never forget, I was doing one book, and I got a story in from... Ian McDonald. It's a good story and it was well received. But I read it and I went, damn, that thing's going to win the Hugo. That is a stone cold, stunning story. And the rest of the world went, that's a good story, but we don't like, you know, we're not that crazy about it, kind of a thing. Yeah. And that sort of thing is always mildly frustrating and you kind of go, well, you know, I guess that's how the world turns. We it all, but it's disappointing. Yeah, it is. It, it is. It, mm-hmm. it, it, and it's also, it's a, it makes you think, well, what do I know then? I mean, I've been doing this for so many years and I still don't know what stories are going to take off and what aren't. I mean, once in a while you kind of know, but more often than not, it's a surprise, the yes. ones that people embrace. Well, I look at it and probably the mo- and it may just be in the context of my conversations, but the story that I've been responsible for publishing that has had the most conversation in the last handful of years would be The Pelican Bar by Karen Fowler, right? Mm-hmm. And when, if you'd told me when I got it that that would be true, I mean, I knew it was a good story, uh, but I don't know that I would have, that I would have expected it to have been picked up the way it was. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've had stories, and I'm sure you've had stories where they win Hugo's and whatever else. And when you got them, you went, "That's good. I'm happy to publish it." Uh, and I don't have any sort of qualitative problem with it, but I don't know that I think it's going to actually catch fire in people's imaginations, kind of thing. Absolutely, that happened to me a lot. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ellen. Oh, I mean, of course, there were some stories that I that catch fire for a whole different reason that I don't didn't expect. You know, Karen Joy, Karen Joy Fowler again. Um, yeah. What I what I didn't see. What I didn't yeah. see. I knew that was. And, I mean, it caught fire because of someone's extreme objection to it not being in genre, really, and that's what made it yeah. an award winner. I don't think people would. I mean, it was. It's a wonderful story. I love that story. I wouldn't have published it if I didn't love it. Um, but I, I think it got more attention because of one critic's antipathy towards it. <laughs> well, I think that may be attention. true. But one of the things that the two of you ha- have in common in editors is that you're... Ge- uh, I, I was going to say generous. That's not the right word. Um, liberal about including stories that 
other writers, other other editors with more narrow genre focus would not have considered at all. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on where you're publishing it also. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, right, right now I feel lucky because I have a lot of different, right now I have my hands on a lot of different pies. I'm working on several different anthologies and tour.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and in tour.com, I'm actually allowed to do anything I want, but my limit is I can't buy all the stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm one mm. of four editors, you know, people gener- people regularly acquiring. And then there are other people from tour, the publishing house, who are also acquiring occasionally. So that's my limitation, that I can I can buy whatever story kind of story I want, and that's wonderful. But it's frustrating that, you know, I suddenly have all these stories coming in that I want to buy and say, oh, gosh, when I can't do it. I mean, I have, like, you know, all of spring is me, and that's scary. <laughs> and that's scary. It's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Because I'm afraid they're going to say, you can't buy any more stories. You've bought too many this year. <laughs> and oh, they're going mean, gonna gonna to. I was going to say, I mean, first of all, congratulations on the gig at tour.com. Um, your being appointed around the same time and Vandermeer was does seem to have been a little bit of a sea change for them. I mean, in the sense that they've always published high quality fiction, and the voice presented it really, really well. But there seems to be a real push forward to do even more short fiction because with with your acquisitions, ones you're talking about, and I know some of Anne's and some of these others, there's a large volume of high quality short fiction, far more than there ever was before there. Well, I was looking up what I I looked at the last couple of years just to see the titles and what was out there. Um, because I wanted to get a feel for it, because I think I I want to nominate Irene Gallo for the World Fantasy next year for her art direction sure. of that com. But anyway, so I wanted to see what was actually art directed, you know, how what kind of stuff was out there in the past year before I started. And they did mostly excerpts. They didn't really? do that many originals, mm-hmm. because I was looking, because they didn't do original art for excerpts. They used cover art, I think. And so there weren't as many original stories as I expected there to be. So if you'll notice, I think that's partly what's going on. In the last year, they've definitely been, or last eight months, they've been publishing more original fiction rather than only excerpts, or mostly excerpts. And that's a big change. Um, yeah. And that's maybe why they brought Anne in and then me. I mean, Anne was brought in a few several months before I was. Yeah. And I was delighted to be asked. And I have the to say, I mean, I... I, I, I yeah, sorry, Gary. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I, I would concur with you just quickly about uh, uh, Irene Gallo. I think the Tor.com original short fiction is the best art-directed short fiction on the web by uh-huh. a significant margin. The, the quality mm-hmm. of the artwork's fin- just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's shocking to me how good it is. I mean, I just love it. I, I'm always surprised and delighted when she sends us, you know, the link to, oh, here's the, here's the art for the story you bought. And I was like, wow. Cool, <laughs> and the are and the authors are delighted too. I'm course. sure. Mm-hmm. Gary, your stories look really. Oh, and I, I was gonna. Well, the other the other rumor, which is uh, it's not a rumor, I guess, but there are these uh, announcements about maybe Omni is more or less or not oh, going to be resurrected, but maybe is, <laughs> but maybe it's not quite Omni, and something's going to happen uh, with that name. And it it, does, it strikes me it's not Omni. I mean, Ellen, the first time I became aware of your name, obviously, was Omni. Um, mm-hmm. And it lasted a long time, and I don't see that sort of thing ever happening again, frankly. Probably not. I mean, it's there's a lot of nostalgia for it, and every few years someone wants to resurrect it. And mm. in fact, um, one of my co-workers was interested in doing it, and she's the one who started the curated tour of Omni on Facebook and, start, and created a website and has control of the copyright and trademark. But then there's this other people, the guy who bought Bob Guccione's storage locker, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the contents of it, but not any copyrightable, uh, but no text, or he has no control over anything that was published in Omni, except maybe the art. Mm, you know, all right. the text was reverted to the authors, so he can't do anything with that, unless he gets permission. I mean, Pam and I have been getting permission from specific well, she's getting non-fiction writers. I've gotten fiction writers to give us permission, yeah. give her permission to put up the tour, the curated tour. And with the advent of the reboot, which is not Omni, and it's... No. no it, I don't know if it ever could be Omni. Uh, well, the thing is, Omni is a long time ago. It's nostalgic. It's a, It was a fantastic idea. And I think something could be made 
in Omni's shoes, but it, uh, it's possible that it can't be called Omni anymore. It may have to be something completely different. I don't know. I'll be really surprised to see if the reboot stays afloat because they're not going to get in, they can't get investors any more than Pam can, unfortunately. Because no, the, the it, copyright. It, it, it's not a persuasive idea. But one of the things, I don't know, you, I, you may have explained this to me at some point, but how did you get into Omni at that time when you didn't have nearly the reputation you have now? I had no reputation. I had never edited short fiction. I was really? in book published. I was in miserable, I was miserably in short, in, uh, sorry, in, in uh, book publishing for about five years. I've actually just been interviewed oh. on Amazon, I'm sorry, by Amazing Stories online which might talk about how I got into book publishing. I was in book publishing for a few years, getting nowhere fast, or nowhere slowly. Um, and it was oh. mainstream publishing. And my first job in fiction, or at, well, in short fiction, was Omni. I met Frank Kendig, who was the editor of Omni. He was the first editor of Omni. And I met him through Don Hutter, who was executive editor at Holt Reinhardt and Winston, where I had worked. Frank had done a book for Don Hutter, and Frank had just started working at Omni. And Don knew I was into science fiction. In fact, I did a freelance. I, I think I did some editing on James Morrow, Jim Morrow, an early book of his that uh -huh. Holt published. And uh, anyway, Don said, why don't you talk to Frank Kending? He's the editor of this new magazine, Science Fiction and Fantasy, Science Fiction and Science. I said, sure. So I met with Frank Kendig, and he introduced me to Ben Bova, who was the fiction editor at the time. And I kind of hung around. I mean, there was nothing, there was no job there at the time. And it uh -huh. had just started, it must have been like this, Omni started, the first issue was October 78. I think I started hanging out in 79, in the summer of 79. I'm not sure exactly. And Ben just kept saying, well, come on, hang around, you know, hang on. He didn't have an assistant. He had a secretary who didn't know anything about science fiction. Uh -huh. So eventually he told me to come in. I think he knew at that time he was being promoted to editor and someone else was coming in as fiction editor. What happened was Ben was going away. I mean, he just told me to hang out. I said, what do you mean hang out? He said, and so I tried to volunteer, you know, when I was a nonfiction editor and say, hey, do you need any help? And they said, who the hell are you? You know, I was like, what do you mean you need help? So I was like, I can't just hang around the office. This feels really weird. You know, I have nothing to do here. But Ben was going to Brighton. It was a Brighton... In, I guess it must have been in 79. It must have been Brighton, the Worldcon yeah, in 79. Was it 79 or 80? I don't know when it was. And I was going to, uh, to California for a few weeks. And we were going to not overlap. I was going to be back a week before he was. And I said, I'll read all your slush while you're gone. And it's like, mm -hmm. God help him. He said, okay. He first said, let me think about it. I mean, he didn't know me from a hole in the wall, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. had no credentials except I love science fiction. And he finally said, okay, sure, read the slush. <laughs> so when he got home, I had read, I, by the time he got home, I went through all the slush. And he, that's when he told me, just hang around, hang around. And So he was promoted. Bob Sheckley was made fiction editor, and I was made associate fiction editor. I said, I, want, I don't want to be assistant. I want to be associate. I've had the experience. I've been in book publishing five years. I should be an associate. Not, I'm sick of being an editorial assistant. So I was made associate fiction editor. Now, Bob... I don't think he'd ever worked in an office in his life, as far as I know. <laughs> he certainly, I'm pretty sure it wasn't much, he never edited either. But they, the first two editors, Ben, fiction editors, Ben and Bob, were hired because of their names. Because at that point, Guccione wanted to make Omni respectable. Because here it is, owned by Penthouse Magazine. <laughs> so to get credentials, he felt that, he needed well-known names in science fiction who were respected by the fans and the readers to do the fiction rather than someone who no one knew. And so he picked these two writers to do it. And they came in three days a week, and two days they were allowed to work, work at home, blah, blah, blah. So that's how I got there initially. I mean, basically, what happened, and it was really weird because neither Bob nor I didn't, knew the process of how fiction editing, a fiction editor worked. The way it really works is that the assistant reads all the slush and the editor reads all the good stuff. But since we didn't know any better, I read everything. Everything came in. I went through it. I read everything. I passed on what I liked to Bob. Mm -hmm. and, and I had a lot more influence on what we bought than I should have in any other circumstance because neither of us knew how it worked. You know? <laughs> so 
that's how I got there, and I basically learned on the job, and I'm still learning on the job. You know, I don't think you cannot teach editing. The only editing teaching I ever got was Ben when he came back from Brighton. He sat down with me. He gave me a manuscript. He said, edit the first page. I said, okay, the first two pages. I don't know what I did. And he went over with me, the Alina. He said, well, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And I told him. And that was the, exper- that was the extent of how I learned how to edit. Although I did do a little editing in book publishing. But yeah, again, then, it's, yeah. not like, it's not like someone can teach you how to do it. It's either <clears> you can do it. Either you have the instinct for it or you don't. Because editing is not just buying stuff, it's working with the authors. And I think most readers don't realize that, that it's not just buying stuff, that it's working and, and hopefully making good stuff great if you can do it, if you can help the writer do it. Well, when you were a kid reading science fiction, were you aware mm-hmm. of anthologists and things? Uh, I mean, Jonathan's always I'm talking about... That's the mm-hmm. only thing I was aware of. I, knew, I did not know magazines existed. I grew up with anthologies. And okay. collections. I knew nothing. My father owned a luncheonette. He had dirty books. He had comic books. He did not have science fiction magazines. Everyone else talks about how they discovered science fiction magazines in the old candy stores and the luncheonettes. My dad owned a luncheonette, but he didn't have them. And it must have been, all I can think of is it must have been a different distributor or something. Because he had every comic book around. And he all had all the, there were these softcore Lancer books, you know, like all these men's adventure and kind of oh, softcore books. Yeah. He had those on the racks, but he did not have science fiction magazines. So I did not know they existed until I got into um, magazines, really, into to Omni. I started learning about it. So what was the first anthology you actually remember coming across? Judith Merrill was an enormous influence on me because of her Best of the Year books. And she, yeah. she included science fiction or fantastic fiction from all over the place. And that has always been a really strong influence on my editing, I think. Have you I always thought that you... After you the Ju- I was just going to say one of the things I thought was very clever that Judith Merrill did. Uh, by the time of the third or fourth of those annuals, she was just titling them SF. And I know, I but remember- they weren't only. They were everything. Right, but exactly. But And I remember, I think one of the introductions, she said, well, this could be science fiction. It could be science fiction fantasy. It could be science fantasy. It could be speculative fiction. She didn't want to, she didn't want to say what SF meant, and that gave her the purview to include almost anything she wanted. Yes, and I like that. I mean, I think that was, it freed up a lot of editors, not writers. No. Well, and I read I, Dangerous well, Visions. Later on, I read Dangerous Visions and again, Dangerous Visions. They were my Bible, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and a lot of Harlan's, um, he, there were what, Partners in Wonder or Partners yeah. Against Tomorrow or something. There were a few weird novella things. Yeah. That were, I, I, I was a member of the Science Fiction Book Club also, so I read things from that. But I did not you know, they said I didn't know the magazines existed. And so yeah. you, you, were, you were clearly aware of who the editors of the anthologies were. Uh, were you well, ever- I knew their names, but I didn't know what they did. I mean, yeah. I didn't. I had no idea. I knew their names. That's about it. And I said, oh, yeah. these people. Did you ever get the chance to sit down with any of them and talk to them about what, about what they did and how they did it? No. I met Judith Merrill a couple of times, but we never had much of a chat, really. And yeah. I never... I, I'd have never met Carnell um, when I wasn't friendly with Don Walheim. I mean, Terry Carr, he was he was a little later, but I met him, of course. And I remember Shauna McCarthy, Terry Carr, and I were sitting around. I don't know when it was, but we were saying, well, who's going to win the Hugo first of us? And it's like, well, I don't know, none of us, you know, none of not me, because I was at Omni, and Omni wasn't. Mm. It was weird. I mean, Omni wasn't, it was respected, but it took a long time before a lot of the stories generally or regularly got on ballots. I know Sand King's Away, of course, and Dragon did, but I think yeah. that was because Ben's holdover from Analog. I mean, he came from Analog, so people yeah. watched what he did. Um, and I forget my point, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting to uh, talk to anthologists, you know, sitting around with Terry Carr and everybody. Oh, right, yeah. right, right, yeah. And anyway, so I think Terry won first and then Sean, and then it took me another 20 years to win. But yeah. That was nice. It was okay. <laughs> well, I remember, uh, I'm, I'm probably a slight... I, I, I love this. I'm, I'm, I'm a generation ahead of everybody now. But I, I, the one person I never met, and I've met very few people who did meet, and uh, that was Groff Conklin, who, when I was a kid, edited everything. Every other oh, paperback on the rack. I read a lot of his anthologies, too. Mm-hmm. I don't. Was he English or American? No, he was an American, I believe. Um, oh. And I... I've talked to I, I'm Charles Brown had met him once I think Harlan said it met but he was not somebody who was a player in the field he was just a very skilled anthologist and a, a lot of his anthologies were not 
outstanding, but they were all readable. Well, where did he come from? I mean, what field, or how did he get into doing anthology? Do you have any idea? I'm not really clear on that. Um, somebody did an article for the New York Review of Science Fiction about his anthologies, and they explained all that, and I can't remember who it was, but it was kind of a checklist of his anthologies. And for people of a certain generation, that was it. He edited every... He and Judith Merrill did the year's best, and Groff Conklin pretty much did everything else, it seemed. He came up through what? New York's Doubleday Bookstore, and then went oh, into yeah. Smart Set Magazine, according to Wikipedia. Okay, what year... When was he doing his anthologies? Uh, he, he started in 1930, mm. uh, and would have finished in the 60s. So his first came, book came out in 34, his last came out in 68. Okay, I may have hit the more... The latter ones. I, I remember also reading a few of Marty Greenberg. When Marty Greenberg did reprint anthologies with um, Charles Waugh, and who was the third yeah. person, the three of them, I think some of those reprint anthologies were wonderful. Um, there was time, Times of Passage is one that I thought was brilliant, and that's where um, Avram Davidson's Now Let Us Sleep comes from, and I've reprinted mm -hmm. that's it. Marty Greenberg's a strange case, though, because I think he, he, he's a best and worst for me. He, he's one of the I, best reprint anthologists I know. Absolutely. And one of the worst original anthologists I know. Agreed. His, 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 his early reprint anthologies, particularly in the, the long series that he did with uh, Charles War, I think it was, yeah. were, were fantastic books, just fantastic. I think Marty Greenberg was also one of the first, I mean, just from my uh, sort of educational institution point of view, he was one of the first academics because they did, he and, um, and Charles War and, and Joseph Olander, did not only interesting anthologies, but they did some of the first anthologies of academic essays about science fiction. See, I didn't um, know so that. they were all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they had done stuff with um, uh, Southern Illinois University Press. So that was before he became prolific. That was before techno books, before the uh, kind of uh, you know sort of massive machinery of Martin Greenberg got, got rolling. I've I've often been curious. Are you a little bit? maybe disappointed might be the word, that you're not better known as a science fiction editor and you're so much strongly associated with being a horror editor, giving the major works of science fiction you've published in your career? It's a weird situation. I would like to do more science fiction. Uh, in fact, at tour.com I was hoping to buy more science fiction, but I still can't get people to write me science fiction for me. Not that much. Uh, I'm not, it's not disappointed. I, I feel like it was a natural progression for certain reasons that I started doing horror anthologies, especially at Omni. It was trying to be to not mm -hmm. have a conflict of interest. And because of that, I started doing more fantasy and horror anthologies and not so many science fiction anthologies. Uh, the science fiction anthologies I've edited haven't been as successful as my other ones. So what can I say? I'd like to do more science fiction. I do like science fiction. I want to keep my hand in it. Um, it's not... It's not disappointing exactly, but I feel like I want to stretch those muscles again. Yeah, because I, I guess I look at and I think what you, you edited the all, uh, all of the I think all of the sprawl stories, for example, by Bill Gibson. I think I, most of them. Uh, maybe yeah. I did. I'm not sure if they were all of them. Because there are only like three or four of them anyway. I think. Uh, you know, Burning Chrome, Chrome and Mona Lisa right. Overdrive and those stories. Yeah. Mm. And and yet that's not something that's immediately associated with you you now. You know, people aren't going back. You know, it's more like, well, Ellen Datlow's the you know the editor of, you know, the year's best fantasy and horror. She's the editor of Teeth. She's the editor of this and that. And then there's the fairy tale stuff. That's quite clearly defined, I think, in people's minds. But, I don't mind but, that. I don't, it, it, that's not. I don't mind that. It's just when people completely ignore it, it yeah. bothers me a little bit. Um, but I had recently an email conversation with Gibson uh, after when we were talking about the Omni reboot. And he just says some really nice things that are m worth more than that. The rest of it, so I don't care <laughs> that much. <laughs> Fair enough. But, but. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's not only me. I mean, when people start talking about cyberpunk, I didn't. I did not publish that much cyberpunk. I published oh. some, okay, mm. and Guard published some also. But what bothers me is when people leave out Pat Cadigan, who is the sure. the only yep. female cyberpunk who is doing major work and. Um, when I see articles that just totally ignore her work, which is, that's really annoying to me, more than not mentioning me. It's like, I didn't do it. I, you know, I published some cyberpunk. <laughs> you know? um, uh, but it's more important, you know, to give credit to the writers. Yes. I have to say, I'm intrigued by the idea that your own reputation and experience 
colors the kind of story that a writer is going to attempt to write for you, irrespective of the project you're doing. You know, and what I really mean by that is, you know, you're saying, you know, you, you want to do more science fiction. People are still writing you, you like more, you know, darker and more fantastical well, whatever kind know, of stories. Unless I tell them, why would they know? I mean, they, I went to Twitter.com being given carte blanche as to what I could sure. buy. And I went after a few of the writers. I specifically mm-hmm. asked some of the writers, I'd write me some science fiction. But a lot of the writers I've been working with in the last 15 years don't write that much science fiction. Um, I mean, what I've been buying is a mix I actually asked Nancy Crest to write me a science fiction story, and her novella is kind of science, fudge, fudge science fiction. So even she didn't get me a really, you know, a hard ass mm. science story. <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's it. It's, 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 I mean, I, I think I think I have to work gradually into it again. Yeah. I think to nudge my writers, you know, and like, come on, I really do want some <laughs> science fiction, guys. <laughs> So, yeah, so I feel in a way it's being ungrateful for the wonderful stories I am getting to say, well, gee, they're really great, but I'd love some science fiction. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, my, my point wasn't really ingratitude. It's just a, 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 a curiosity. It's like I found for me I'm better known for science, science fiction kind of things that I do. Mm-hmm. And when I ask people to write some, some variation, they still skew that way just because they're assuming I guess that's my taste or whatever else it is. And I, I'm well, I mean, to me, one of the biggest compliments I get, I know people don't think so, but is that um, they don't know what the taste is. <laughs> yeah. But, but, no, I think well, in, in terms of that, I think a lot of people will be surprised to find out how writers will try to target a particular editor because, you know, the kind of mythology we all grow up with is the mythology dating from the 50s, which is if you write a science fiction story, you start with the highest paying market, and if it doesn't sell there, you work your way down until you're finally selling it to super science stories or, or something like mm-hmm. that. And, and, well, like, and actually, there's nothing wrong with that. With, I mean, with going down, using that measurement to start sending out your stories. But on the other yeah. hand, the field is so fragmented that some stories just don't go well with certain uh, magazines and webzines, and you know that. Yeah. Well, I, I, th- that. I, think, I think an experienced writer knows editors and knows, well, I, I, I'm sure you, that, that there's a sense that Okay, this is a story that that low will like, or this is a story that um, that Strawn will like. But there, there are younger writers who just don't know the games. They don't know the ropes. How do they find out where to send stories or who to send them to? They read the venues, you know. Which is get a. I mean, that's how I. When I get a story that I don't think works for me, but it would work for someone else, I'll recommend it to another editor. So mm-hmm. if I can do that, why can't the writers do that? <laughs> and I don't even read all the works. You know, I don't. I mean, I don't read every magazine cover to cover. I kind of skim the ones that aren't horror because I'm always reading horror. So I mean, but I have a feel for what the other editors like, and if I do, why can't the writers figure it out? I mean, not figure it out, but have a feel for it at least. Yeah. I mean, well, that's my point. Fair, I th- you need to be at least cognizant of who you're submitting to, of what types of stories a magazine might like. Right. But do you think it's easier to do that to, to a magazine which tends to have a more defined personality than it is to an editor, for a you know, freelance editor you know, doing an anthology or something? An anthology is a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's so different. Um, I mean, it's so limited. I mean, I'm mostly doing uh, theme anthologies. So, and they're usually a genre, one genre or another. Um, so there's a limitation built into that, although there is... You know, I, I try to get as much variety as I can within the context of sure. the limitation. Oh, yeah. You know, and some writers, I find, they tell me that they have an easier writing for a themed anthology than for a not-themed anthology. And in a way, I think doing a non-themed anthology is much harder than a theme because I have to make sure I'm not getting too many of the same types. I'm sorry, my cat's one infection. I'm happy to hug her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to make sure that in a non-theme anthology, I don't have too many of a particular type of story. I mean, that's also with the themed anthology, but it seems more, I feel there's more herding of writers. Well, it's either free their anthology, an original anthology, you have to herd the writers all the time and say, well, this is what, I have too many of these, don't write any more of those kind of stories. How regularly are you in touch with writers during uh, the process for doing an anthology? Well, first I'll ask them before I even sell it if they're interested in the idea, especially yeah. if they're people who I think can sell the anthology for us, for me. Yeah. Um, 
And then if we do sell the anthology, I'll get back to him and say, okay, here's, you know, we sold the anthology, here's the due date, here's what I'm paying, and this is basically the guidelines. And then over a few months, I'll contact people and I'll say, how's it going, and find out, what? You know, I don't remember, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yes. Yeah, it's like, you asked me to do a story, I said, yes, I did, here's the email I sent you, and you said yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm really sorry, I don't have time. You know, so, yeah, it's a constant, it's over the period of time, I have to, I, I'm always in contact. Yeah. When you, when you sort of think up a theme anthology, that's... That's a kind of creative act in the sense that you're you're coming up with an idea. Let's take let's take uh, Queen Victoria's Book of Spells for example. At a certain point, if I realize that I have too many of one type of story, I'll go and tell the writers, who or the contributors who are still interested. I said, you know, please don't write something about this. Here's a this is a plot line, a thematic thing I'm getting. I do not want more of these, so please don't write this. I don't. I haven't in the past. I didn't find it as much as more recently. I'm hurting them more. I feel more hands-on that I have to make sure that this is not, that they're not over repeating too many of the same basic right. plots. Do you, ever, do you ever get that money, that moment in doing a theme anthology where the, the, the first batch of stories are coming in and they're circling around your theme and they're all great and you want them all, but you're still waiting for those core uh, stories that are going to yes. nail the theme down? Yes, absolutely. I think, well, should I buy this or not? Should I wait? What should I do? I think, I don't know. I'm not sure if I buy this has made me the anthology to go in the wrong direction. I'm not sure. Yes, that's happened recently. And you find yourself mm. going, well, you know, because I guess what the... You don't want to commit. Sorry? don't want to commit to any... I mean, I'm not the kind of person who, like, waits for 25 stories and then makes the decisions. What yeah. I do is I will buy a story as I love it, you know, as sure. it comes in and say, yes, I want it. But then there are some stories where I'm not sure I have to figure out if it's too much like this, or if I get too many stories of this time of ha- type, I have to be really careful. So it totally depends on what's coming in and when. I've certainly done books where I find myself sitting there waiting for the you know the last group of st- stories to come in, and you're waiting like, please give me the the story that's going to fit. You know, uh, I, I need a book if I'm doing Queen Victoria's Book of Spells that Gary mentioned a second ago, that has Queen Victoria's Book of Spells in it, or it's not going to work out. Delia Sherman had the title. Yeah. I mean, we had the title first. Yeah. I mean, Terry's title is a great title. And we decided that we wanted to have one story called that. And both Jane Yolen and Julia Sherman wanted it, but I think Julia came first. Said, you can have the title. So, <laughs> so the title to the anthology came first. And some people think that we named the anthology out of this, after the story, but no, not at all. It's the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, once in a while, I'll, I'll realize I bought two stories that were, that dovetail, that they're kind of similar, but not, but they're different. But I feel, oh, my God, I, I love these two stories, and I bought them, and I'm like, oh, what do I do with them? Either you can put them right together and just bite the bullet and say, okay, here they are. They're similar. Yeah. Take uh-huh. it or leave it. Or you move them, like, really far apart in the anthology, which is what I did. <laughs> Have you ever had, had an odd <laughs> moment where you're buying stories for an anthology, and you've got, like, two come in? And they almost seem to imply a whole other different anthology you could have done instead that would have sat with those two and another group of stories. No, that, that happened. I've had that happen once or twice, but. But you know what happened, which was horrible. Yeah. I forget if it was, if it was either. I think it was with. It was with one of my co-edited anthologies with Terry. So I and I, I don't think it was Queen Victoria. I don't know which one it was, but I suddenly realized as we were almost finished that, um, I think they were all first person. It was a YA. It might have been for Teeth or After. I don't remember. And most of the all, most of the stories we got in were first person. And I suddenly realized that it's like 15 stories in. I said, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I mean, it didn't. They didn't feel like they were first person, but they were. And so the next bunch, the people who hadn't written their stories yet, I emailed everybody. I said, um, "What? By the way, what what point of view is your story from?" Garth Nix wrote back saying, "Why are you getting all first person stories?" And I was like. <laughs> Oh my God! Is that a YA thing? <laughs> you know? Apparently it is. And he said, "Well, mine is kind of, but don't worry." So I was like, "Oh, great!" You know, but no one noticed. I mean, I suddenly and I'd never noticed before in other anthologies that, for all I know, a lot of my anthologies might have the same point of view. Um, I just had happened. In- and have you ever had someone come back to you, read one of your anthologies, and then say, uh, "You know, why did you do this? There's this theme all the way through it, and you didn't even notice it?" Not really. Yeah. Um, I, I notice usually when I'm trying to do my introduction, which I hate writing, 
usually I'll look over all the stories again, and it's more often in a non-themed anthology that I'll suddenly discover a theme, and it's like, wow, that's interesting. Or even when I did the Omni Books of Science Fiction, uh, the seven volumes for Zebra, as uh-huh. I was doing those, I realized there were thematic commonalities among a lot of the stories, so I was able to use that in the intro. Yeah. Uh, not usually until I'm finished, sometimes. Yeah. I only asked because I once did a, did a book, in fact, a year's best book here in Australia, and the editor I was working with at the publishing house uh, got the book and said, we're really happy with it, but one problem, why are all the stories about kinky sex? Oh, boy. <laughs> and we kind of stopped and went, no, they're not. That's ridiculous. And then went back and went, oh, I guess you could look at it from that angle. I hadn't really thought of it from that angle kind of thing. So there's that. One thing I really want to get to is you've spent the last... 20 plus years reading for the year's best fantasy and horror and now for the best horror of the year what do you th- what do you think of where, of where horror short fiction is these days I've been saying it for the last five years or more that I think horror short fiction is in a golden age I mean we're getting there's so much great stuff out there I think that short horror fiction is wonderful and really varied and I think that some of the best writers are those who don't specialize in horror or aren't even called horror writers um, I mean, some of my favorite writers who write horror sometimes are Liz Hand and Jeff Ford. Yep. But they don't always mm. write horror, you know, and Peter Straub, some of his, well, he usually writes pretty dark stuff. But, I mean, there are people who write all kinds of, uh, Karen Warren. I mean, there are a whole bunch of writers who are not, who are writing horror, but not only horror. And I'm not sure, uh, maybe the, the insular horror community doesn't consider them horror writers, but I think they're wrong because they are horror writers. No, and I could see this, yeah. Uh, I can think of a writer like Brian Evanson, for example, who yes. who likes yes. horror and he's fascinating and he writes really disturbing stories. Um, but within the horror community, he's not really that much of a name, I gather. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, but there are so many. It depends what you mean by horror community. Well, so. I guess the people the people who go to the convention. Uh, that's right. that's my only my only understanding of the horror community is I've been, as you know, at a few. Um, World Horror Conventions, and there there seems to be a really definite community there, which in some ways is better defined than the science fiction community. It seems to me. Uh, in some ways, I think, well, the, it may be because there are fewer horror magazines. You know, it in could, a way, there's, I mean, there there are a lot of science fiction slash fantasy spec fiction magazines out there and webzines, and I think because of that, the communities there are niche niche, I don't know, markets, and mm-hmm. the communities, I guess, are a little more diffuse. For horror, there aren't many horror magazines. There are very yeah. few, in fact, that are strictly horror. I mean, I keep trying to get horror writers to read FNSF, because there's a lot of horror in there. But mm-hmm. it's like, they kind of refuse to pay attention. It's like, yes, there is horror in fantasy and science fiction, you know, and here it is. Um, but they don't, a lot of people don't consider that a horror magazine. And that's the problem, I think. I'm not sure if this all gels, but Does that's that my mean feeling. that there's a... So it's kind of more insular than, than science fiction is these days, in a way. Is there a growing disparity yeah. between uh, the influence of that insular horror community, whoever that may or may not be, and the rest of what's happening in horror, do you think? Well, not in sales. I mean, I think mo- much of horror is now being published in the mainstream, and it's not being called horror. I mean, for years, the serial killer novel, to me, is a sub- subset of horror, I mean, depending on how dark it is. And, I mean, I've been, since, you know, since the 90s, I mean, I was talking about it, there's a whole, all these mainstream writers were, and I think there's more of an acceptance of Joyce Carol Oates as a horror writer among our community, the, science, the horror community. Um, she's won the Stoker Award at least once or twice for her, oh, she really? won last year collection yeah i mean i was on the collection jury but i mean the pop the vote was you know by everybody in the you know uh, all the members not just the jury so i think it's both a blossoming and a closing up it's up you know it's part of the problem with hwa is that the the people who vote um don't want to go out and buy a lot of books and so when people, when the publisher, the small press horror publishers send them free books, of course, their books are going to have the advantage of being read. 
yeah. which I find totally frustrating. But it's easy for me to say it's frustrating, but I get free books as a reviewer, you know. So Of course. You know, if I had to buy all the books that I voted on, um, voted for, I would probably be just as annoyed and not maybe read them all. I think you're right about the mainstream. I think I think one of the things that's uh, there's a little horror uh, group of horror writers here in Chicago that are nice people, but they all a lot of them seem to be really pining for the days in which horror was the best-selling paperback category in the country. And it, was it was never. A, you know, it was never. It was for five minutes when Stephen King burst out of the gate, and for five years or three years, everyone was starting horror lines because of Stephen King. Right. Right. You know, and yeah. that couldn't sustain itself. Horror came out of the mainstream, and it, it's gone back in the mainstream, and that's fine. That's, that, that's my point. Is that it's, what I think happened is exactly that. That these people thought, okay, I can be a horror writer now. I can I can write stuff like Stephen King, and all these little zines came out and so forth. But horror itself, uh, the the phrase that Peter Straub used it was in a Locus interview is horror is a house that horror has moved out of. Um, and I think that's you're absolutely right. From from the Lauren Bucus novel, The Shining Girls. Um, yeah, I read somebody, that. Yeah, it's clearly a horror novel, but it's not being oh, marketed absolutely. as that. Well, it's also science fiction, and uh, is it being marketed as science fiction? I'm not. I not think really. It is. It's being, no, it's being marketed oh, as they, mainstream. Isn't it? Isn't Mulholland published the publisher? Is Mulholland? Uh, yeah, I think it's crime. So. I mean, they specialize in crime, so it's being marketed as a crime novel, which is what mm -hmm. it is. And it's they pushed it. I don't know how well it's selling. I know they pushed it a hell of a lot, and that's really great. Yeah. But it's a science fiction horror novel, you know. Yeah. Um, but sure, it, but it's a crime novel, and Mulholland feels they can publish crime novels, so and that's what they do. Well, one of the things I think that is happening there is that some science fiction devices that it it's a time travel story, but there's no science fictional rationale for it. But it's as though time no. travel is now time travel is now a mainstream trope. You can use time travel to write a romance like Audrey Neffenegger. You can use time travel to write a serial killer novel like Lauren Bucus. And nobody seems yep. to mind that you're using science fiction devices in mainstream novels anymore. No, but they don't want to call it that. No. Where where do you see a book like Fearful Symmetries going? Because you're working on that at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm in the middle of it. Um, well, I've bought a bunch of stories for it. Um, we're still... Chising people are still reading some of the uh, the slush pile, the 1,081 submissions. Um, wow. I've grabbed a bunch of them. Um, I have at least I have a couple of stories from that that I, from that open submission thing that I'll probably be taking, and it's due soon. It's due in well, I got an extension luckily, but <laughs> it's uh -huh. due this fall. Now you mean the manuscript so, is due or the book is due this fall? The manuscript. Yeah, so it's coming out next fall. year sometime. I take it. Yes, yeah. yes. It was supposed to come out like February, March. We'll see. I mean, it'll come out next year, but I'm not sure exactly when. Yes, yeah, You both have to explain to me, and many of our, our our listeners are in the same boat I am. Fearful Symmetries is okay. a line from William Blake, but as a title, it doesn't tell me what the stories are about. Well, there's actually something else, Jonathan. Should we tell him? Sure, yeah, yeah. Why not? Oh, Do come on. I mean, I... Well, Jonathan and I tried to sell a science fiction horror anthology. He came up with the name Fearful Symmetries. We could not sell it for whatever reason. When I was decided to do the Kickstarter with Chizine about uh, for a non-theme horror anthology, mm -hmm. I don't remember how it came to me that Fearful Symmetries would be the perfect title. It's meaningless, really, you know. I mean, yeah. it's a great title. It doesn't matter. What I've come to realize is that a title is, if it's a really catchy title, Yeah. and you and that once the book is there, it becomes that title, and it almost doesn't matter what it means. I don't remember what it means in the William Blake poem, do you, Jonathan? No, 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 I. Basically, you and I were looking for something in a science fiction horror sense that would give mm -hmm. you a lot of space to, to work in and give you some kind of a, an idea. And I guess in terms of the sales and marketing aspect of it, I guess the cover would have nailed that down some more. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it was like you wanted something that was like scary, but, you know, and, and I'd started Symmetry off. Symmetry felt uh, kind of yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like that. It's a, the the, the <laughs> and, line and, and, is, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, just let me, let me be pedantic for a minute. It's tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest yes. of the night. What immortal what hand or eye could frame thy fearful, fearful symmetry? symmetry. Yeah. The first right. two words of which provided the title for an Alfred Bester novel also. Exactly. Tiger, tiger. Oh, yeah, tiger, tiger. Yeah. You'd almost think I had that in mind, Gary. Uh, <laughs> claim that you did. Always claim that you knew whatever they thought you knew. 
No, no, I, I Jonathan, did get Jonathan, it. We, That's Jonathan, exactly. we need to have a new title and try to sell it again. We do. I think you're exactly right, and we'll talk about that when, when we see each other in Brighton. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, it, it, the same approach was what I did with Engineering Infinity, coming up with a title that didn't, I mean, it doesn't mean a damn thing. Right. But, but, but you start getting around the, the sort of con, the concepts and the feeling for it, and then you put it the book together. To together. And yeah, and it becomes what the title is. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, exactly. I mean, right now it's a very varied... It, The first story I bought was by Helen Marshall, and it's kind of this weird Helen Marshall story. I mean, she's... Yeah. Uh-huh. I was going to say she's Canadian, but actually I'm not sure where she's from. Uh, yeah. She was living in Canada. She just moved to London, or England. So I don't know where the heck she's from. But um, she's written for Chising. She has she's written some wonderful stories. She's a really weird writer, and her story is very odd. Um, and it's dark. Is it horror? I don't know. Do I care? No. No, no. Well, that's the great thing about doing on themed. I mean, there, there's a certain uh, challenge I think that you would have found in doing on themed, where you're trying to actually you need to, any anthology in a sense is like a piece of communication. And you're trying to communicate an idea to a potential re- reader so they'll pick it up and buy it. And that's the yeah. challenge around a, a an on-theme book, getting enough of that together so readers will follow you, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, my um, the reason I went through Kickstarter was because my previous non-theme anthologies didn't sell very well. Yeah. And I knew I couldn't sell mm. another one to a publisher. Yeah. I've done a number of non-themed anthologies, and they've all done terribly in sales. Um, the first was... Uh, Salon Fantastique yeah, with yeah. Terry, uh-huh. and that was fantasy. It was a wonderful. It's a really good book, I think, yep. but it had kind of a sh- crappy cover. Yeah. But that, but I don't, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't. Well, it might have been because the publisher went bust and sold his company. You know, we were yeah. orphaned times, but that's neither here nor there. That happens. And then um, I did the Delray Book of Science Fiction and Fantasy, which was non-theme, and that didn't mm-hmm. do very well either. And I loved the cover. Yeah. And then I did Infer- I did Inferno for the horror anthology. Um, the Delray book was science fiction, fantasy, and a little bit of horror. Yeah. Inferno was all horror. And compared to The Dark, my ghost story anthology didn't do well. So I knew that no publisher was going to buy the damn thing you know, if I wanted another one. So that's mm-hmm. why I came to Kickstarter. It means that, that the publisher doesn't have to take any hit. You know, yeah. I mean, we, have, yeah. we know we have like 700 people who want the book. The, the backers. I mean, they're not even 700, 700 people have been backed it, but not even all those people necessarily want the book, but at least 600 people pre-sold. Yeah. So that's, yeah. you know, so, you know, and they're going to print more copies. They're going to, it's going to be in stores and everything. It's going to be a normal book, but we know we have that 600, you know, those people and that's good. Yeah. Well, I have to say that my experience with Eclipse, which is my major other on-themed anthology thing, was not unlike that. Uh, the audience was not always there, and the sales were never particularly good, unfortunately. Right. Well, what's frustrating is everyone is always saying, I don't want the non-theme, I don't want themed anthologies, I want to read non-theme, but no one buys them. It's like, yeah. well, that's nice, you yeah. really want them, but then you have to get like a few thousand people to buy them, or it doesn't count. Just because you theoretically want to see a non-theme anthology, if you don't buy it, that's not any good. It's not going to do the editors any good. Then no one, no publisher is going to buy one. Yeah, certainly there are times when you feel that when t- when um, antholo- people talk about buying anthologies, they're talking about it in a theoretical rather than a practical sense. You're like, I want this kind of book to exist, but I'm not going to buy it, which doesn't right. really help a whole lot. I don't know that that's exactly the case. I mean, I'm thinking of myself as a book buyer now, um, or at least as a book acquirer. And if I if I um, like non-themed anthologies and i know who the editor is and this goes back to you know the the, the whole experience we've all had with terry carr and judy merrill and and, and groff conkin as a book buyer i was going to say that um as, and I, I used to like non-themed anthologies because i like to see a variety and there never that many of them so my theory is this my theory is the people who like non-themed anthologies maybe a smaller group but that group will also buy the themed anthologies whereas the people right. who want themed anthologies won't buy the non-themed anthologies Right. So you've really got a double readership for your themed anthologies, those who don't care whether it's a theme or not. But when you do a non-themed anthology, part of that market is gone because they just want vampire stories or uh, apocalypse stories or zombie stories. Right. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever I get a sense, though, uh, what? I was, this is a question for both of you, that to some extent when you mention looking at Jeffrey Ford uh, horror stories, or Karen Joy Fowler, or or or, or, or mar- people that are not that widely known. That to some extent, what you do is training readers, maybe to broaden their spectrum a little bit and well, to look at things. Sure. My job is corrupting is corruption. <laughs> I want right. to, Excellent. I, I, I love that. 
I want the readers to like my taste. I want to push my taste on everybody. That's yeah. basically my goal in life. Mm-hmm. And certainly when I'm doing a, a project, I'm very aware of oh, straying from it a bit, if you know what I mean. I, actually pushing other things in there, pushing the limits of what it can be. Yes, delivering the core of what everybody needs and expects and wants and will satisfy them, but throwing in that handful of extra things that will surprise them that they didn't expect yes. and that they will maybe carry away into the future as something else that's now on their spectrum of reading because they're not just somebody who reads a X kind of a thing. Yeah, you have to be really – it's working a type tightrope to do that i mean mm. you have to you do have a core of what if you want to stick to the theme you kind of have to do it to some extent but i'm perfectly willing to throw in a few um wild cards that i consider if i can justify something as being thematically part of a book or what i'm doing then i'll throw it in if i really yeah. love it mm. I, I think but you, have, you can't do too many of that you can't no. do too much no, on anthology or you know you just have to be careful you have to watch I think the hardest decision is when you have a story that you absolutely love and adore, that you know is stunningly brilliant, and it totally doesn't fit the project, and you're kind of sitting there going, is there some way I can shoehorn this thing in here and just look at everybody with a straight face and go, la, 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 or do I have to actually not take this and either push put it in another project, which I've done, I've certainly shunted stuff around between my own projects, mm. or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of stories right now that... Um, were originally sent to me, I think, for Fearful Symmetries. But then I got, like, more than one story from one person. I bought one for Fearful Symmetries. I can't buy the second one by him for that. And I want to buy it for Tor.com, but I don't know if I have the room. You know, I, I feel, oh, my God, as I said, they'll shoot me. They won't let me buy anything else. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and, it's like, and then another story, a second story by someone who, that I, I can't remember where it was sent to me originally. I mean, that's what I was like, where did he send it for? I don't remember. But I don't feel... I don't think it, first of all, I'm worried that I'm going to have too many stories about children in the fearful symmetries. That's always a problem with horror. Yeah. So many stories are not necessarily about children, but they're either about children from the point of view of children, of adults looking back at being child, a child, all uh-huh. that kind of configuration, uh, all that mix. And it, even though it may not, be in actuality some readers get the feeling that oh it's all about children and so i feel i have to be extra careful about that um so that's one reason i'm not sure about this story and uh, but i really love it and i want to buy it for something so yeah i have to figure out okay what am i going to do about it <laughs> <laughs> i'm not giving it up let's put it that way I'm not giving no. Up. no 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 where am i going to put them <laughs> Well, I guess we, we should say uh, the next big thing that for you, you know, right now, uh, and something that overlaps with, with this particular podcast is your guest of honor at uh, at uh, the Worldcon next weekend, or this weekend. Yes. Congratulations. It's next weekend, not this. This weekend is starting for me tonight. <laughs> Tomorrow. Yeah. For you, it's already going on, Jonathan. Yes, next weekend. <laughs> well, congratulations. So, yes, it's really honored. exciting. It is. It's very exciting. And it's um, it's like weird i mean it's like thinking okay i've won kind of uh what have i i've won uh lifetime achievement it's like what i'm finished now it's like well what do i yeah. have to look up look forward to then if i'm the guest when they asked me t- a couple of years ago i was so thrilled because they kind of i don't remember who it was exactly who came up to me but it was one of the people from austin and they kind of sidled up to me and said you know we'd like to ask you to be our guest of honor at you know Worldcon in San Antonio. I said yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean it's it's extra special because it is people at least partly run by the people who used I don't know if they're still doing Armadillocon but you yeah. know, I used to go to yeah. Armadillocon a lot. So it's especially gratifying and it'll be really fun. Here's the thing about being a guest of honor Ellen is that what you're doing is I mean you've been a pioneering editor and I don't think that's too much to say that and uh, in, in one sense, if you look at the history of women editors in science fiction and fantasy, there was Judy Merrill and probably C.O. Goldsmith, and Mary go- maybe going back to the 40s, Mary Nadinger, who did famous fantastic mysteries. But you've not only validated that part of the profession, you're validating the profession of an editor, and it's something I find very encouraging that fans are willing to recognize the role of editors and anthologists. I think so, it's... Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to. I in my recent interview, amazing. I had. I brought up. I was asked what editors I emulated or I 
held, you know, in high esteem or whatever. And I just picked three. And one of them was Judith Merrill. One was Michael Moorcock for create for what he did with New Worlds. With New Worlds, yeah. <laughs> also Shauna McCarthy. Shauna McCarthy yeah. made Asimov's what it is today. I, I mean, all power to Gardner. But he took over from Shauna. Shauna brought it into the adulthood. It would have been a boy's, you know, a teenage boy's dream for the rest of its existence. But Shauna took it over, and she wasn't editor for as long as she should have been. She stupidly, <clears throat> sorry, she foolishly went off to Bantam, mm. to book editor. Yeah. But she brought in adult fiction. She made it an adult magazine and, like, changed the direction so radically. And she, she did get a Hugo for it, but, you know, everyone forgets her now because she hasn't been, you know, she hasn't been editing science fiction for a long time. She did do Realms of Fantasy for several years, but... Um, she never has gotten. I don't think she gets the credit she should have, and she no. was a major short. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And we mm. started at the same time. We both started. I mean, I started Omni. I was made fiction editor a few months after she was made. <clears throat> finally, made the editor at Asimov's, so that we compared notes and stuff. It was kind of fun yeah. at the time. Well, on that note, we should probably wind up. That's about the standard length for for an episode of our podcast, but. We'd like to thank you for joining us. It's it's been a pleasure to have you back after a, a hundred episodes. I think it is. Thank you, thank you. It's like I can't believe we did it twice. I just remembered we did it once. But all right, I'll a couple of times. No, definitely two. Okay, okay. Yeah. No, this is great. Thank yep. you so much. And no doubt we will, you know, we will talk again. We will, we will see you in in Brighton, which should be a lot of fun. I mean, you guys will be yes. talking well around the well in, I'll in be Texas. Seeing Gary next week. Oh yes. yeah, absolutely. Yes. In a few days now. So. Uh. Yes. Uh, thank <laughs> I'm you. I'm leaving Wednesday. When are you going, Gary? Wednesday. Okay. I'll see you there. Peace I envy you. Have you. a great time. Until thank then, you. thank you very much, Ellen. And, Gary, thank I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week from... Okay. Have Texas. a great weekend. Until then now, okay. as always, we rem remain the Mullers of Coot Street.